digoxin. Now, digoxin is sometimes called a digital cardioglycoside. So if you want to know the true uh, class, it's, it's uh, cardiac glycoside. There's actually two of them, digoxin and digitoxin. But digitoxin is not given in the United States. Who cares? Just be thankful you only have to memorize one. All right, never look, never look a gift horse in the mouth. Now, um, it's derived from the digitalis purpurea and lanata plants, also known as purple foxglove. Very pretty little plant that's deadly poison. How many of you ever seen the movie, uh, what was the last? Casino Royale. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Do you remember the part where he drinks the wine and, and then he's poisoned and he has to die and he's got to like, Put, you know, shock himself. Yeah, yeah. According to the movie, you know what he was poisoned with? Dijoxin. Crazy talk. Um, so, digitoxin is not available in the United States, only digoxin. It is a troublesome drug. Why is it troublesome? Well, we use it to treat two things. Really, one of them is atrial fib. We use it to lower the heart rate. It does a good job of that. But the other thing we use it for is heart failure. Now, with heart failure, it decreases morbidity, but not mortality. What does that mean? It makes you feel better, but you don't live any longer. And in fact, with women, it may actually cause them to die sooner. So again, it's a troublesome drug. You know, doctors don't like drugs that don't make people live longer. Living longer, decreased mortality rate, is the gold standard of medical treatment. The other thing about it is it has a very narrow therapeutic range. What does that mean? And there's a very fine line between not enough and too much. And then the third thing is that it is pro-dysrhythmic, which means although we can use it to treat some dysrhythmias, it can actually cause other dysrhythmias. So it is a very troublesome drug. Now, it gives the heart a positive inotropic effect. What does that mean? Makes it do what? Not faster. Harder. So it increases the strength of myocardial contraction, and that's why I gave you the muscle sign as I said that. Now, the way it works is it's going to inhibit sodium-potassium ATPase, more commonly known as the sodium-potassium pump. And the way it, what's going to happen as a result of this is calcium is going to accumulate in myocytes. Now, what is it that causes muscle to actually contract? No, I mean the actual contraction. Do you remember the sliding filaments? Well, hang on, sliding filaments. Do you remember that? What are the what are the filaments? Myosin and actin. Oh yeah. And then, in order for myosin to bind to actin, 
it has to be able to get to a binding site. But those binding sites are covered up by something. Tropomyosin. <laughs> and then the tropomyosin has a little receptor molecule called tra troponin. Troponin is unlocked with calcium. So calcium allows myosin to bind to actin. So if we inhibit the sodium-potassium pump, which allows calcium to accumulate inside the muscle cell, what's going to happen to that muscle cell? It is going to contract more. Remember, calcium allows the muscle to contract. If you've got more calcium in the muscle cell, it is going to contract more. Now, the way that it works to inhibit the sodium ATPase is it binds to the sodium-potassium binding sites. So it competes with potassium. Now, here's what that means for you. Low potassium enhances toxicity. You're more likely to become toxic and die by accident on this drug if you have low potassium. If you have high potassium, it reduces the effectiveness of the drug. So then we give you higher doses and then we correct your potassium and then you die. So low potassium enhances toxicity, high potassium reduces the effectiveness. You absolutely must know that and remember it forever as long as you're a nurse. Um, yes, not only my test, but your med surge test, maybe next semester, maybe this semester, maybe both. Definitely your critical care test and probably uh, the NCLEX too. Yeah, so you really need to remember this. No, it competes with potassium, which inhibits the sodium-potassium pump, which makes more calcium stick around. I see that we need to review our muscle physiology. Oh, yes. All right, so, so this, um, this little video is actually available under PathoFarm 1. Yes, you did see it in PathoFarm 1. So here you have a neuron. Here you have the cell membrane. What's available in these cell membranes? Well, acetylcholine is at the top, and it's acetylcholine activates. What are the what do these little things look like to you? They look like sodium channels. So there's sodium channels, and so when the acetylcholine hits this, what happens to the potassium, or what happens to the sodium channel? It opens up, and then what happens? Sodium comes from the outside pouring in. That's what we call, well, it is an action potential, but depolarization. Now, this is for a skeletal muscle cell, but it works the same way with heart cells. So depolarization of the muscle cell, which causes the endoplasmic reticulum to release calcium. The calcium diffuses over to the sliding filaments and causes them to contract. Now, what will happen to this thing eventually is that the sodium potassium, or the sodium channels will close back up, and then you'll have a sodium potassium 
pump, which will pump sodium back out and potassium back in. And that will return to a resting state or a polarized state. Now, what digoxin does by competing with potassium in the sodium-potassium pump, it makes it, it makes it take longer for this to get back to its resting potential. So it takes longer to reset. If it takes longer to reset, what happens to the calcium here? It stays around longer. Because as this cell resets, the endoplasmic reticulum sucks the calcium back inside. So what you're doing is you're basically slowing everything down, which is going to make it contract harder, but it's also going to make it slower. So it's going to be stronger, but slower. Say stronger, but slower. And now you know what digoxin does. Makes it stronger, but slower. Say it again. Say it like you mean it. You think you're going to remember that on a test? <laughs> yeah. Yes, ma'am. Stronger but slower? Just say it. Okay. Now, the other thing that it does is it slows down. It slows down the electrical conduction in the heart. And it does that by slowing down the SA node, the AV node, and ventricular conduction. So, if we have the inotropic, chronotropic, and dromotropic effects, which ones go up, which ones go down? Ino goes up, which means strength, and then what goes down? Chrono, and what about dromo? Dromo. So, two downs and one up. You think you remember that? Okay, positive Ino, negative Dromo, negative Chrono. So stronger, slower, slower, slower heart rate, slower conduction. Stronger, slower heart rate, slower conduction. Well, slower conduction, slower heart rate. Got it? Strong, slow, slow. Here's a little picture. <coughs> now, there's three things that we use digoxin for. The first one is heart failure, and then we use it for atrial, um, atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, and atrial tachycardia. Now, for all three of these atrials, what are we really after? What are we trying to do with digoxin when we use it to treat atrial fib, atrial flutter, and atrial tachycardia? Okay, so one thing we're trying to do is slow what down? Okay, one thing is to slow the heart rate itself, but what else are we trying to slow down? Conduction. So it works on both of those. Do we really care about the increase in contractility when we give it for atrial fib, atrial flutter, or atrial tachycardia? No. What we care about is slowing the heart rate and slowing conduction. Now, when we give it for heart failure, what are we interested in? Okay, we're interested in increasing contractility with heart failure. And what else are we interested in? Slowing 
Okay, we want to slow it down so it has more chance to refill. What about the uh, electrical activity? What's the body's normal response to lowered cardiac output? Epinephrine and norepinephrine and starts with an R. Renin-angiotensin aldosterone. So you guys aren't supposed to forget that. It was only two weeks ago that we did that quiz. So, what does epinephrine do to conductivity in the heart? Speeds it up. So when we give digoxin, what are we doing? Slowing it down. So we also counteract some of the possible prodysrhythmic effects of epinephrine in the body. Does that sound like a good thing? Sure, why not? So in heart failure, what are we after? Increasing contractility, decreased conductivity, and decreased heart rate. Now, when we do the dysrhythmias, atrial fib, atrial flutter, atrial tachycardia, what are we after? Heart rate and conduction. So the strength, the, the inotropic effect is kind of wasted with those three, if you want to think of it that way. All right, now, adverse effects. Number one is dysrhythmias. Digoxin can mimic almost any dysrhythmia. If you have a patient who's on digoxin and they start having a dysrhythmia, you need to ask yourself, self, could this just be a side effect of the digoxin? And you also have to ask yourself, self, could this be digoxin toxicity? And what lab value would you want to check to help determine that? Potassium. Are you sure potassium? Yeah. Are you sure? Sodium. Is that your final answer? Yeah. Well, it should be. <laughs> so you're going to check potassium. When in doubt, hold the digoxin. You can always give it an hour later. But once you put it into them, and things don't always work out so well as in Casino Royale. Now, the next side effect is bradycardia. The nursing implication for bradycardia is before you give this drug, you are going to take an apical heart rate. What does that mean? You're going to use your stethoscope, put it on their, on the apex of their heart, and listen for one minute. You're going to do this right before you give them the medication. If it's less than 60, you're not giving it. Make sure you monitor the potassium. Um, and also you want to monitor the digoxin levels themselves. Now, some other side effects it can have. It can have anorexia, which means loss of appetite, partly through its next one, which is nausea, and can also cause fatigue and visual disturbances like seeing blurry or double. It interacts with anything that affects potassium. So, what are some things that affect potassium? Okay, which one's lower potassium? Give me some drug names. Okay, Lasix lowers potassium. Give me another one. HCTZ, or hydrochlorothiazide, lowers potassium. Give me one that raises potassium. Give me two. Spironolactone. Spironolactone and? 
triamterene. Alright? ACE inhibitors, what do they do to potassium? What do ACE inhibitors do to potassium? Flip a coin. They raise it. Sympathomimetics. What are sympathomimetics? Okay, so it's something that imitates the sympathetic nervous system. So what's the most common sympathomimetic? Well, in as far as drugs that a person would take. What would be the most common? Well, it used to be Sudafed, but now you have to ask the, the pharmacist for it, so now it's phenylephrine. Yeah, now it's called Sudafed PE. PE for phenylephrine. Phenylephrine PE. No. Sudafed PE is phenylephrine. So, what do we use phenylephrine and pseudoephedrine to treat? Colds, allergies, flu. So you have to tell people who are on digoxin if they get a cold, don't just go down to the pharmacy and because it can interact with their digoxin. Um, these two drugs can increase levels of digoxin, quinidine and verapamil. Um, you can pretty much cross out quinidine because hardly, pretty much no one's on quinidine anymore uh, unless you go to like certain parts of Asia or Africa where there's malaria. And ver what is verapamil? Calcium channel blocker. All right, administration. Before you give it, you should take apical pulse. The normal PO doses. Um, you need. You're gonna have to know these doses. Um, that's a good question. I know you didn't ask it, but the previous the previous critical care professor. You had to know these numbers cold. I don't know if the new ones want you to know them cold or not, but I'll ask them. Um, so anyway, the PO dose ranges from 0.125 to 0.375. And you can remember that because 0.375 is three times 0.125. So if you remember 1.25 and then... Multiply it by three. Now, there's a loading dose. What that means is it takes a while for digoxin to start working in the system. So sometimes what they will do is give the patient a larger dose the first time, and that's called a loading dose. It's given IV, and the IV dose, the IV loading dose is 0.4 to 0.6. Kind of like a bolus. And then the maintenance IV dose is 0.125 to 0.5. I think the reason is because you're in the hospital monitoring them, whereas PO, they go home on it. Now, 23% of digoxin is bound to albumin, which means that if a patient has low albumin levels, they may have higher they may be more at risk for toxicity than if they have normal albumin levels. 
It's eliminated by renal function, and you should always, always, always monitor renal function. And who tends to have heart failure, old people or young people? Older people. So how are we going to monitor renal function in an older person? Creatinine clearance. It doesn't have to be by 24-hour urine. It could be just an estimated creatinine clearance. That'd be fine. Or they also, you can also do it by estimated glomerular filtration rate. All right, done with the Joxin. Aren't you glad about that? Don't worry, it'll come back to haunt you. <laughs>